Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. In a quiet farming community in scenic Fresno, California, a dangerous cult that was hiding in plain sight was suddenly in the middle of a child custody battle that ended in a tragedy. Today, we will investigate how this happened and what we can do to protect our community in the future. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime In It. Marcus Wesson was born in Kansas on August 22, 1946. He was the oldest child of Benjamin and Carrie Wesson. Benjamin was an abusive alcoholic who left his family while Marcus was still a child. Carrie was a deeply religious member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to the point where she was religiously abusing her children. For those who don't know, according to Wikipedia, religious abuse is abuse administered under the guise of religion, including harassment or humiliation, which may result in psychological trauma. Religious abuse may also include misuse of religion for selfish, secular, or ideological ends, such as the abuse of a clerical position, end quote. Religious abuse is rarely talked about, possibly because of the way that we discuss religion as a whole. Religion is a deeply personal and sometimes private experience. And oftentimes when a child says, this is just an example. I can't eat this because of religious reasons. We don't question it because of wanting to practice religious freedom. A side effect of this, though, is that abusers will then use this fact to secretly traumatize others. It's really sad and scary. And if you pay attention to the news, you may have noticed that there are more stories being told from the perspective of those who were subjected to religious abuse as a child. In fact, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, there are dozens of subreddits dedicated to people who had to escape religious abuse. So Marcus grew up in a strict religious household, but he was an overall good kid. He sang in the choir and he was just fascinated by trains. His family moved from Kansas to San Bernardino, California in the early 60s. Marcus dropped out of high school and enlisted in the army. He served from 1966 to 1968 and he worked as an ambulance driver. After leaving the military, Marcus settled down with a woman named Rosemary Solorio in San Jose, California. Rosemary was 13 years older than him, and she already had eight children from a previous marriage. So they became a family of 10. Shortly after, they became a family of 11 in 1971 when Rosemary gave birth to her ninth child and Marcus's first. 
The family, though, was not a happy one. Marcus was both physically and emotionally abusive to Rosemary and their children. And things took a turn for the worse in 1974 when Marcus began to sexually abuse Rosemary's eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Rosemary tried to stop him, but Marcus has a tall and hefty stature, which does overpower her. When Elizabeth... When Elizabeth was 14, they were legally married. Marcus was 27 at the time. Elizabeth grew up in this house with so much abuse that marrying Marcus was just normal to her. Only four months after their marriage, Elizabeth gave birth to their first child. So if you do the math, it's even worse. In total, they had 10 living children living together, five girls and five boys with two miscarriages and one child died in infancy. The family got even bigger after this. And now I'm using the term family lightly because of the abuse. When Elizabeth's younger sister, who was a struggling addict, sent her seven children to live with Elizabeth and Marcus. It's hard to tell how many children were living at the house at one time. I've seen reports saying that the final number was 16, but I'm sure there were times when that number was either greater or less than that because the kids were growing up and having their own children with Marcus. So firstly, Marcus did not have steady work. Elizabeth said that at one point, Marcus worked for a bank, but it's implied that he was fired for telling people that and this is a quote, God was speaking through him and that the end of time was near. Unable to hold a job, Marcus lived off of welfare. And when the children were old enough to work, they would go and get jobs and then give him their entire paycheck. The family also had to make do with what they had. They never really lived in a home, but instead they would squat in shacks and boats and abandoned houses, commercial properties. And look, families live in all types of homes, okay, but they make it work. There's this beautiful family I saw on TikTok and they have tons of kids and they converted a bus, like a school bus, into a mobile home so that way the kids can be on the road with their trucker father. And it's not the lap of luxury, but it gives the children everything they need. But the problem here is that these homes were described as jail-like by the children. They were often unsafe, dilapidated structures that no one knew people were even living in. So if a boat would sink or a home be scheduled for demolition, there could have been a terrible tragedy. It didn't help that the kids were being homeschooled by Marcus. These children never got to leave the prison that Marcus created for them. In fact, Marcus insisted on keeping the children hidden away so that way they didn't have to be forced into the school system or become noticed by authorities. They would stay in these houses, boats, buildings for months at a time without going outside. It's just cruel. The homeschool curriculum that Marcus went by was his own version of the Bible that was handwritten. In his Bible, Marcus took inspiration from Seventh-day Adventists and vampirism. Yes, he was inspired by vampires. He believed that Jesus was a vampire because of both beings being immortal and then with communion with the 
ceremonial wafers and wine, he he felt like that was vampirism. So he gave the children vampire names such as Java, which is a combination of Jesus and vampire as a way to honor his belief in vampirism. Like other cults, he also urged his children that it was time to prep for Armageddon. He claimed to be a god and his daughters were all destined to marry him. And this may have been why the girls were not allowed to talk to their brothers. Yes, they were not allowed to talk to any man, including their brothers. He gave the girls a separate education entirely that involved grooming them to become his ideal wife. This so-called education is just as bad as what you're thinking it is. And he would teach the girls about sex from his own skewed perspective when they were only eight or nine. And he even had the girls wash his dreadlocks. He had locks and uh, scratch his armpits, which is just bizarre request and a bizarre thing to teach someone to do. He justified, though, this sexual abuse by saying that Jesus was a womanizer. That is a direct quote. And he also said, God's people are becoming extinct. We need to preserve God's children. We need to have children for the Lord. So he used these two ideas to justify his abuse. And as a result of his abuse, all five of his daughters became pregnant with his children. The boys, though, were not excluded from the abuse as they were often physically abused for very trivial things. One of his sons retell a story in a news interview of his father ripping a cable out of the wall and beating him with it until he was covered in welts. Both the boys and the girls were beaten every day and were required to ask Marcus for their spanking once in the morning and once in the afternoon. They were also hit for doing normal things such as eating an extra spoonful of peanut butter when they were hungry. When the Wacko Massacre unfolded in 1993, which for those of you like me who were too young to remember this, this was a law enforcement led siege on a building in Waco, Texas that housed 91 members of a Branch Davidson inspired cult. The siege resulted in 82 deaths. Marcus looked up to David Koresh, who ran the cult, despite the fact that Koresh's leadership led to most of his followers dying. Marcus believed that the family was better off dead if they were ever to be in a situation similar to what happened in Waco, Texas. He had the children watch the siege as it unfolded on the news and would use it as a way to justify their living conditions. He would say he was right and that this is why they are prepping for Armageddon. And he also said that if this were to happen to them, they would be better off dead versus alive, just like the victims of Wake Up. The family lived like this for 30 years. Yes, you heard me, 30 years. As the children entered adulthood, they were allowed to take jobs, mostly at fast food restaurants. But as mentioned previously, they gave their entire income to Marcus. Sometime in the early 2000s, the family began to split. Marcus's nieces, Ruby and Sophina, had enough and they 
both ran away together. Unfortunately, they had to leave their kids behind with Marcus. They both had seven-year-olds. Ruby had a daughter named Aviv, and Sophina's son was named Jonathan. Ruby actually settled down and had another child with a man that she met at work. Though both women were able to escape and try to restart their lives, they were desperately missing their children. And now it's time for another mission. So I'm back from my break and I finished my rainbow game. It has been released. That's part of the reasons why I took a break so I could release this and get the finishing touches and make sure the pattern is perfect for everyone. So now that that's released, I'm back here and it is really, it feels good to be back recording. I really do love making these episodes for you guys because it is just a great way to be both entertained and informed at the same time. So not only are you able to listen to something as you knit, but you are also able to learn and hopefully help make this world a better place with me. So anyway, today I am still working on a quarter zip pattern that is sized from baby to grown man adult. So I have been knitting away. I'm trying to knit everyone in my family one and I'm still working on my own. I had to recently rip out some of my sleeve. If you've been following me on Instagram, you would have noticed that I have been knitting these two sleeves at a time. I had to rip some of it out because I did my, it's a tapered sleeve with decreases and I didn't follow my own tried and true pattern for tapered sleeves. I did my own because I forgot what I usually do because lately, like this sweater has been doing full sleeves, non-tapered sleeves, just straight, no shaping, which is fine, but I kind of forgot how often I work my repeats and why I do it that often. So I kind of did it the old school way at first, which in a lot of older patterns are they do a lot of the decreases at the upper arm, like when you're working sleeves. And then you you get balloon arm effect when using thicker fabrics or thicker or bigger gauges. Like what I'm using today is quite a big gauge. It's four stitches an inch. So it's quite chunky. And so when you're decreasing that rapidly in one space, you're going to get balloon arms. And I'm just thinking about the balloon pants that was worn back in the day when riding horses. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? And so that that's the image that I had in my head and I ripped it out immediately and luckily sleeves go fast i was hoping to be finished today but you know that's just how designing goes sometimes and that's okay Uh, for anyone who ever wants to design just know there will be times where you will rip it out and you will live it will be okay i promise but yes this will be my first sweater that i am knitting for my husband and i'm worried about talking more about this because it's supposed to be a christmas surprise and he's in the next room with my son so he's probably hearing me blabbing this or maybe he has his headphones in and is listening to tiktoks hopefully so after this sweater i'm going to start his and if everyone's sweater is going to be an acrylic mix reason being is that first my son gets super itchy all the time in wool no matter 
matter what it is, he gets itchy, whether it's merino, superwash merino tends to be the best for him, especially with layers. But if he, ha it's just, he just gets itchy. And so does my husband. And so do I, like this has a little bit of wool in the collar and I'm already a little bit like itchy from it just because my skin's extremely sensitive. It's embarrassing because I love wool, but my skin hates it. And I've tried many different types of wool. I think my favorite against the skin is a super uh, fine and smooth merino is the only thing that isn't itchy only if it's in a, if it's tightly wound and is like fingering weight. So anyway, that's why a lot of my sweaters aren't wool because my skin, I'm, I'm just over it. My skin's itchy and I'm over it. I used to put up with it because I love wool. And now I'm at the point in my life where if I'm itchy, get it away from me. So hence why I'm using acrylic today and my kids the same way and my husband's the same way. So he has said no itchy wool sweaters, even though they are the best because they last forever. So the yarn I'm using is Heartland by Lion Brand Yarn. And the reason why I use this is because I've used this before for a sweater and it looked amazing. I used it for color work and you cannot tell, like you really cannot tell that this yarn, like in photos, you can't tell that it's not wool and it washed extremely well. I threw it in the washer and dryer in a lingerie bag, you know, a sensitive clothes bag just to be sure that it would survive the washer and dryer. And it did. And it it's just a really great acrylic to work with for sweaters. One thing about acrylic sweaters is that they are deathly warm. So hence why mine are pullovers. They're meant to be worn in lieu of a jacket or if it's super cold, maybe with a vest to help keep you warm. I tend to wear them dead in the winter when we're going Christmas tree shopping. That's like my favorite time to wear them because they are super duper warm. They're just as warm as wool. They just aren't as breathable as wool. So if you're wearing it inside at a party, you might overheat, which is me in any sweater anyway. So just keep that in mind. If you're hearing me ramble about using acrylic and you want to try it, make sure you are using it for something like outerwear or something for when it's super cold, just because wearing acrylic inside can be too warm in certain climates. I used to wear it a lot inside when I was in school. I used to go to school in Rochester, New York to get my master's and it would be so cold in those classrooms in New York. Like in general, it was so cold that I could wear, I can live in my acrylic sweaters and be perfectly fine because by the time the class is over, about two hours later, you're still not warm from the trek from your car to the class. So that's when I really started wearing acrylic sweaters because it was so cold there and I couldn't afford wool. And my skin was super sensitive because it was so cold. My skin felt like it was going to flake off. <laughs> so that's where that happened. So yeah, if you never try giving acrylic a try, give it a try. Maybe try it with kids clothes first and see if you enjoy it. Just keep in mind it's super warm. It's not breathable, but it washes well. There's this pro its cons people everything has its pros and cons so you may have also noticed for this show i do not have a guest with me i was supposed to but then it didn't happen because I've been having the busiest two weeks in a very long time between appliances breaking, my son entering his terrible twos, 
and just a lot of things going on in my house. The guest is coming next week for sure. It's scheduled and ready to go as I speak. So we are good to go for my guests. I'm just a little bummed because I wrote this episode in hopes of having a guest with me, which is why I picked a subject that was a little bit different from what I usually pick. So next week I should have guests and hopefully guests for every episode. I dropped the stitch. So now it's time to get back to our story. In 2004, the tension in the family finally broke. At the time, the family was living in peaceful Fresno, California. They squatted in an abandoned commercial building. The building wasn't meant to be lived in, and as a result, it was very cold. To combat the cold, Marcus had the children sleep in antique wooden coffins. On March 12th, Marcus announced that he would be relocating the family to Washington State so that way they can be closer to his own parents. But his extended family, including Ruby and Sophina, did not agree with the move and they feared for the children's safety due to the family having a suicide pact. The pact involved having one of the older children kill the younger ones before turning the gun on themselves. Marcus was supposed to be the only one left alive, and it would be his job to explain what happened and to tell the family story. It's funny how these leaders are always the last ones to be alive in these cases. But so Ruby, Sophina, and about a dozen other relatives paid a visit to the home in hopes of getting their children Ruby, Sophina, and even Marcus were amicable during the confrontation, though, though Marcus's daughters were clearly angry. They would call Ruby and Sophina Judas and were telling them that they needed to bow down to their master, Marcus. Neighbors called police to the scene on what was described to be a routine custody dispute. But by the time police arrived at the scene, bystanders and neighbors began to hear consecutive gunshots from inside the house. Elizabeth ran out of the house, yelling just four words, they are all gone. An 80-minute standoff ensued before Marcus finally turned himself in to the police. By the time the police stormed the house and arrested Marcus, it was too late. In a back room where the coffins were stored, bodies were wrapped in bloody clothing and stacked like firewood. One by one, police uncovered nine bodies. Sabrina April Weston, who was 25, Elizabeth Bree Hikina Weston, who was 17, Ilabel Carey Weston, who was eight years old, Aviv Dominique Weston, who was seven, Jonathan St. Charles Weston, who was also seven, Ethan St. Laurent Weston, who was four, Marshy St. Christopher Weston, age one, and Sedona Vedra Weston, age 13 months 
old. Each victim was shot in the eye before being stacked together. The rest of Marcus's children were not home at the time, and as a result, they were the only survivors. The gun was found in Sabrina's hand, which made some wonder if she was the one to fire the fatal shots before turning the gun on herself. When Marcus went to trial, his family was still divided, with the women being willing to testify against their father slash uncle, with the men testifying in his defense. The sons denied having a suicide pact at all, and they claimed that Marcus was a perfect father who loved to play with his children. Marcus's defense claimed that it was Sabrina who committed the murders, and this point was supported by the fact that Sabrina's DNA was found on the gun. Luckily, the jury was not having any of this, and Marcus was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of forcible sexual assault. He is currently waiting his turn on death row at San Quentin State Prison. Currently, the children that Marcus abused are trying to piece their life together. Many have started their own families and are working hard to not repeat their father's mistakes. They are doing interviews and collaborating with journalists to get their story told. Still, I'm sure that many of you never heard of this case or only have a vague memory of it. This is because shortly after the murders, all of our attention was pulled towards the Scott and Lacey Peterson case. But there is one silver lining to this story. Alicia Sofields, a journalist from a Fox News affiliate station in Fresno, California, was so moved by the story that she had Elizabeth Wesson, her daughter Kiani, and Gypsy, and her niece Rosie move into her home with her. Alicia knew that she was crossing a line that journalists were not supposed to cross, but she was willing to sacrifice her career to help these women and girls get back on their feet. With the help of the Westons, Alicia told her story through the book, Deadly Devotion. And that's the story of the father who thought he was God. For more information, including show notes, please visit www.thedrunknitter.com slash truecrime. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.